1: I'm Bruce Gellerman, as the FDA weighs the safety of the first genetically modified fish, an expert weighs the agency process that could land the fish on your dish. I am working on a book called Should I Eat Fish? (laughs) And I don't have
0: an answer to that question, a yes or no answer to that question.
1: Also, the head of the EPA says small businesses have nothing to fear from greenhouse gas regulations.
2: It is a myth. EPA will regulate cows, Dunkin' Donuts, pizza huts, your lawnmower. Somebody said to me today, kittens. I like that one. It is not true.
1: And a bird of prey soars above New York and inspires a city. To see a father hawk or mother hawk bring a rat to his baby it's wonderful it's biblical a hawk a city a love story and more on living on earth don't fly away
3: support for living on earth comes from the national science foundation and stonyfield farm
1: from the jennifer and ted stanley studios in somerville massachusetts this is living on earth i'm bruce gellerman The first genetically modified animal for human consumption could soon be on its way to a dinner plate near you. Any day now, the Food and Drug Administration is set to make a decision about the safety of a transgenic fish called the aqua Advantage salmon. It's designed to grow about twice as fast as your usual salmon. But there are some who have a beef with the process the FDA is using to evaluate the fish. Among them is Martin Smith, an economist at Duke University.
0: So the concern is that the FDA is looking at this decision in an overly narrow way. They're treating the decision about whether to approve this genetically modified salmon as if one salmon is just going to replace another salmon. But what they're ignoring is that technological innovations like this, the purpose of them is to lower production costs, and in all likelihood that will lead to expanding production, and that in turn may lower prices and change the total amount of salmon that people are eating.
1: So the FDA is looking at this fish based upon its impact on human health and environmental safety. What are some of the larger impacts that you see? On the human health
0: side, the larger impacts are quite striking. If you grow the salmon market significantly, you may have people eating more salmon and less of other animal proteins that could have very, very significant positive public health consequences because salmon is a particularly healthy food. So that, of course, would weigh in favor of approving this product. On the negative side, if you grow the market substantially, you look at environmental impacts, one of the problems with salmon is that the technology still requires feeding salmon feed that comes from wild fish stocks. Some of those wild fish stocks are not managed well. And so if you grow the salmon market, you might exacerbate pressure on wild fish stocks that are poorly managed.
1: What about fish farmers versus fishermen? That is, people who raise fish in pens and people who hook them in nets or on lines.
0: In this particular case, this is an interesting one because the company plans deliberately to grow this product in tank-based systems. But there are connections between the capture fishery for salmon and the farmed salmon. The prices move together. These products don't exist completely independently in the market. So if you lower prices by expanding the farmed salmon market, those lower prices are going to affect fishermen.
1: So what would you suggest in terms of the FDA's process? What should they be doing? What we suggest is that the FDA should think about the
0: various scenarios in which this product will affect markets. And look at those scenarios and trace through both the human health impacts, which, as I mentioned, could be very positive because of the health benefits of eating salmon, but that they also look at some of these environmental consequences.
1: This could be an exquisitely complex problem, though. How do you measure societal benefits versus environmental costs, uh, health costs, uh, impacts down the road? How do you do that? Well, it is
0: exquisitely complex, as you put it. In economics, we tend to try to create a common metric for everything. So we try to monetize benefits and costs and put them together and see which ones are bigger. And not all public policy decisions should be made solely on the basis of benefit-cost analysis, but it's worth doing that analysis to at least inform those decisions. Even if the FDA takes the broader analysis that we suggest, they may ultimately come to the same decision about this particular case that they would Uh, looking at it narrowly. So the issue here is process. And we're at a crossroads here. We have an opportunity to set the right precedent because we're considering the first transgenic animal for human consumption.
1: I'm wondering if the FDA is institutionally capable of making this kind of decision.
0: That is a very difficult question. FDA certainly has economists working for it. And so they have some capacity to do it. We argue in our paper that Congress should give them additional funding to build infrastructure to do this kind of analysis. Boy, then you'd have to factor in politics into your equation. <laughs> I'm pretty sure politics are already involved. Professor Smith, I've got to ask you, would you eat transgenic fish? Uh, that's a great question. I am working on a book called Should I Eat Fish?, <laughs> And I don't have a, an answer to that question, a yes or no answer to that question. But I would lean toward yes on, on this particular example. Because you're putting
1: the FDA in a spot here with your paper. You're saying, you know, what, what do we do? What do we do uh, kind of as a society? And I'm thinking, you know, I'm standing in the supermarket before the fishmonger and, and I got to decide, do I eat that fish or not? Absolutely. I think what we do
0: is is we make decisions deliberately. We, We weigh all the benefits and the costs. That's what we're asking the FDA to do, make that as transparent as possible.
1: Well, Professor Smith, thank you very much. Thank you. Martin Smith is an economist at Duke University. His analysis of the FDA review process of the first transgenic fish appears in the latest issue of Science. January, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency will take a major step toward restricting greenhouse gases. The agency will begin regulating emissions from large stationary sources, such as power plants, major refineries, and chemical facilities. That is, unless Congress says no, a growing contingent of lawmakers wants to stop or delay the EPA's greenhouse gas rules. Living on Earth's Jeff Young explains what's at stake.
3: For the past few weeks, the most pressing matter for Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski has been spelling. She still faces a legal challenge from her opponent, but it looks like Senator Murkowski has waged the first successful write-in campaign for Senate since 1954. Alaskans, it turns out, can spell her name.
4: We did have a pictogram. It was M-U-R plus, and then the picture of a cow with a K on the cow's belly, and then a pair of skis. So we were reminding people that, look, this is not that difficult.
3: Now Senator Murkowski can return to another pressing matter, spelling out for the EPA what it should and should not do about global warming. She's the top Republican on the Senate's Energy Committee. This summer, Senator Murkowski got 47 votes, far short of the 60 needed, for a Senate resolution that would have stripped EPA of its authority to regulate greenhouse gases. She pledges to try again.
4: What we fear is the inclusion of not just the largest emitters, but the gym down by my neighborhood or the dry cleaner, the facilities that you have in your neighborhood. In
3: 2007, the Supreme Court ruled EPA must consider carbon dioxide a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. For most pollutants, the act requires regulation for any source of 250 tons or more a year. But because CO2 is such a different kind of pollutant, EPA took a different approach. It will only apply the regulations to facilities that emit at least 75,000 tons of CO2. But Senator Murkowski doubts that will stand in the courts.
4: You're going to have the first lawsuit that says, no, wait a minute. The Clean Air Act says anything over 250 tons, and so then EPA is going to be forced to regulate them. So even though the administrator may say, look, this is not our intent, under the Clean Air Act, that's, that's kind of where you're stuck.
3: EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson has tried to assure Congress and the business community that Senator Murkowski's scenario of regulations for mom-and-pop stores won't come to pass. Here's what Jackson told a gathering at Georgetown Law School last year.
2: Today is this myth. It is a myth. EPA will regulate cows, Dunkin' Donuts, pizza huts, your lawnmower. Somebody said to me today, kittens. I like that one. Um, and it's overzealous and somehow misguided and somehow, you know, strange uh, unfurling of regulatory might that will happen any second now because nobody's putting the brakes on Uh, EPA. Um, It is not true.
3: But the rhetoric against Jackson's agency is heating up as the start date for the new rules approaches. Industry representatives warn of a possible halt to new plant construction and economic havoc as state agencies become overwhelmed trying to deal with new CO2 permits. Bill Becker has a one-word answer for all that. Baloney. Becker leads the National Association of Clean Air Agencies. His members are the ones who actually do most of the work writing Clean Air Act permits at the state level. Becker says state agencies are well-prepared for the new greenhouse gas rules. And EPA's guidelines mean that most facilities will simply need to improve efficiency in order to reduce emissions.
5: If you listen to industry, they'd have you believe that they're going to be asked to do some things that are impossible, that's going to shut them down. And the fact of the matter is, all states are primed, except for one, to start this program, and the kinds of actions that state and local permitting authorities will be asking industry to do are smart, sensible, energy efficiency ones.
3: Texas is the only state refusing to participate in the greenhouse gas program, but several states joined Texas in suing EPA over the new rules, and challenges in Congress are almost certain. Republican leaders pledge to use control of the House to investigate EPA's actions, and they'll get support from Democrats from the more fossil fuel-dependent states. West Virginia Democratic Senator Jay Rockefeller is pushing a proposal to delay any EPA action by two years. The president has pledged to veto any such attempts. But Professor Robert Stevens at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government says it adds up to some tricky politics for EPA.
0: EPA is right in the middle, and some people would say they're trying to walk a knife edge here.
3: Stevens says EPA risks alienating conservative Democrats and empowering Republicans who want to paint the administration as anti-business. On the other hand, the EPA rules are crucial both to reduce emissions and to give the president concrete action he can point to in international climate talks. And Stevens adds this is not a position the administration wanted to be in. Everyone in the administration From the president on down has said that the preferred
0: way to address climate change is with congressional action, but that if that wasn't there, then they were obligated, as they would say it, to go the regulatory route. So that was a threat. Well, you know, the bluff, you could say, has been called. So this is something they're not particularly eager, in my opinion, to go forward with.
3: Stevens says the coming year will be a test of the agency's commitment and creativity when it comes to using an old law to take on a new challenge. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young.
1: You can hear Jeff's full interview with Senator Murkowski at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, a formula for green chemistry. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, a science sleuth solves the mysterious case of lead in campus water coolers. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Hannah Lyles.
6: New York City is about to get the blues. Blue roofs, that is. Under a new plan proposed by Mayor Michael Bloomberg, the city hopes to combat stormwater runoff by using blue and green roofs. New York's wastewater system is over a century old. Stormwater and municipal sewage are funneled into the same pipes, and these days, the volume sometimes exceeds the capacity of the wastewater treatment plant. When it does, the wastewater overflows into the East and Hudson Rivers. Blue and green roofs capture rainfall and allow it to be gradually released over time. To do this, blue roofs use drainage pools while green roofs grow ivy or grass and covering the city in these roofs will do more than reduce sewage overflow into the rivers. The vegetation and gardens on green roofs harbor diverse species of insects, fungi, and plants, while also promoting food production. They could even help lower the city's ambient temperature in the summer. The water collected on blue roofs can be recycled and used for irrigation and sidewalk cleaning. New York aims to reduce wastewater overflow 40% by the year 2030. Perhaps the colorful roofs will earn the city a new nickname. The big green apple. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Hannah Lyles.
1: And if you have a Cool Fix for a Hot Planet... We'd like to know it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a shiny blue Living on Earth tire gauge. Keeping your tires properly inflated can save you big bucks in fuel. Call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or email CoolFix. That's one word, CoolFix, at LOE.org. Or post it at our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And remember, you can hear our program anytime on our website, loe.org, or get a download for your MP3 player. There, you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. For more than 60 years, the chemical company DuPont promised better things for better living through chemistry. Well, these days, the slogan might say, better chemistry for better living. In laboratories across the country, chemists are trying to come up with new formulas to make safer products. And students at many universities are learning how to do it. It's called green chemistry. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports on the changes at one of the nation's most influential chemistry departments, the University of California, Berkeley.
7: Two blocks from the UC Berkeley campus, Michael Wilson stands outside a garage.
8: So we're at a very typical automotive repair shop. Uh, We have about six or eight mechanics working here with uh, vehicles up on hydraulic jacks. And as you can see, this is a fairly uh, solvent-intensive process.
7: Wilson is a professor of public health now, but eight years ago he was a firefighter paramedic, studying for his Ph.D. here in environmental health when he heard about the case of an injured worker.
8: A young man, a 24-year-old automotive mechanic with really advanced symptoms of neurological disease. He had lost his sensory and motor function in his limbs. He'd lost his grip strength. He was in a wheelchair.
7: The state health department had a hunch
8: about what was happening to this young man. He was going through about eight to ten cans a day of a commercially available brake cleaning solvent product that was formulated with hexane and acetone. And that formulation causes nerve damage.
7: Wilson wondered whether this was an isolated case, so he started visiting other auto repair shops. He found 14 more mechanics with similar neurological damage just in the Bay Area. They would spray the cleaning solvent on cars, then work while the vapor evaporated, as Wilson put it, in their breathing zone. This toxic brake cleaner wasn't something that had been around for years and somehow escaped the attention of California regulators. It was a new product. California officials had asked manufacturers to remove some of the hexane from their cleaner because it can turn into ozone, which burns people's lungs and aggravates asthma. They did and replaced it with acetone. Why is it? That a uh, known
8: neurotoxic solvent was used under completely uncontrolled conditions by workers across the state of California.
7: On campus, Mike Wilson says he found himself in the precarious position of wanting to change a profession he was just entering.
8: Our field has typically been about measuring the extent of the damage. And I became interested in the next level of question, which was, why are we creating these occupational and environmental health hazards in the first place? Don't we have the talent and the resources to create safer chemicals and safer products from the beginning?
7: These questions led Wilson to the field of green chemistry. Established by Paul Anastas and John Warner in the 1990s, it's the emerging field that looks at where chemicals end up in people and the environment and advocates safer substances. Next, Wilson began talking with the university chemistry department. What we found
8: here at the uh, Berkeley campus was that chemistry education hadn't really changed much in the last 30 to 40 years.
7: Not too long after, Wilson met a new chemistry grad student who'd arrived at the university. Marty Mulvihill and Mike Wilson had something in common. Call it a public interest approach.
9: While I was here, it was really important to me that not only did I do research, but that I reached out to my community and that I thought about ways that chemists specifically could influence. Society, Like, we use a lot of resources from society. Chemistry is a very resource-intensive thing. Like, how do we give back?
7: With this kind of community orientation, it was natural that the first thing Mulvihill did when he got to Berkeley was start organizing other chemistry grad students.
9: The name of that group was actually Chemists for Peace which turned out to be far too controversial for a place like Berkeley. I mean, there's like that perception that, you know, Berkeley's an activist-oriented thing. But when you look at something like chemistry, anything that even appears political is not widely accepted. So we produced a lot of coffee mugs, and people generally liked that we were around, but... It never really took hold.
7: It dawned on Hill that he needed to be speaking science to scientists. So he and a core of other grad students organized their own seminar series. They got a grant from the Dow Chemical Company and brought in top thinkers in green chemistry, John Warner, Paul Anastas, Terry Collins. At first, Hill says the chemistry department wouldn't even give them a room to meet in. But gradually, the students prevailed.
9: I can remember the evening it happened. The dean had just come in, I think it was his first, maybe his second year. The graduate seminar group was going on, and John Warner, one of the fathers, one of the guys who wrote the original book on green chemistry, had agreed to come to campus and give a talk. And the dean actually showed up to that talk. Not only did he show up to the talk, but he came out to dinner afterwards. And it was so fun to watch as the dean and John Warner so it's Dean Rich Matthews and John Warner interacted. And all of a sudden I realized now it's bigger than me.
7: To really appreciate the significance of what's happening at Berkeley and other campuses around the country, you have to understand just how remote health concerns have been for most chemists. This area of science is toxicology, the study of the adverse effects of chemical and also physical and biological agents on living things.
9: A traditional chemistry training doesn't teach you a lot about the fate of things. You learn a lot about how to make it and how to make it cheaply and efficiently. Like, that's all part of the traditional science training. Where they end up, what their possible effects are on human health or the environment, that just hasn't traditionally been a part of a chemistry education.
10: We're working with these chemicals all the time, but we don't necessarily know how toxic they are or if they are toxic, like, what their mode of action is or why they're harmful to you.
7: That's Allison Narayan, another organizer of the student-run seminar series. Narayan is a fifth-year organic chemist making entirely new compounds.
10: Really how we're trained is to focus very much on the reactivity of the chemicals and developing new reactions and new ways to build things, not necessarily even evaluating the performance of those materials or the toxicity of those materials.
7: Narayan says she's been surprised by the lack of toxicology training in her chemistry education. And environmental health scientist Michael Wilson says it seemed strange to him, too.
8: The fact is that in the United States you can earn a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and a Ph.D., in chemistry at the universities and colleges across the United States and never demonstrate a basic understanding of how chemicals affect human health or the environment. And so are we surprised that toxic materials are finding their way into consumer products that are widely available on the market? We probably shouldn't be.
7: And Wilson says chemists aren't the only scientists who have not paid much attention to toxicology. Amazingly, even public health experts often aren't trained in it.
8: So we're seeing a transformation, actually, in the School of Public Health, embracing this idea of green chemistry, where up to now, our job has really been about identifying, measuring, characterizing the extent of the problem. It's simply no longer possible for us in public and environmental health, to clean the mess up at the end of the pipe. We have to design chemicals. We have to design products in ways that they don't show up in human blood and in breast milk and in hazardous waste sites and in groundwater.
7: The first big signs of changes taking place at Berkeley, besides the student-organized seminar, happened last summer. For the first time, the university offered its entry-level chemistry course with the option of a single lab section that was green. On this day, second-year students Sweta Akela and Michael Poon are doing a practice run through one of the new labs.
8: What she's actually trying to do is find the concentration of the dyes in the drinks just to see how much we're drinking. The red 40 is very common in a lot of consumables. Because the amount of dye in them is very small, to get a measurable amount you have to concentrate the entire sample, so you boil off the water and that um, increases the proportion of the dyes in the sample. This is
6: Sunkiss
8: and Hawaiian Punch.
6: I think the thing that really appeals to me is the practicality, because a lot of times you do a lab, you find like a concentration, and you just like forget about it afterwards, but When you do, like, the sunscreen lab or this lab, you actually, like, think about it the next time you put on sunscreen or the next time you decide to drink a soda.
7: Poon points out it's not just a question of lab subject matter.
8: I think it's really important to think about where your actions are leading. If you pour something down the drain, where does it go? Think about that and what needs to be done to process that, to clean it up, to make it so that the water is usable again.
7: A review of class evaluations from students who took that first green chemistry lab in the summer shows a lot of enthusiasm. Chantelle Cambolgia was one of those freshmen.
3: Well, our first lab section was on biofuels, and in the first lab we went through and looked at the effects of various biofuels on the germination of seeds to measure ecotoxicity. In the second lab, we actually synthesized our own biodiesel, which was awesome. And in the third lab, we measured the uh, amount of energy produced when it was burned.
7: This fall term, the Berkeley Chemistry Department converted all of the introductory lab sections into green chemistry labs. Berkeley Chemistry lecturer Michelle Dusky oversees teaching assistants for the introductory classes. She says traditional chemistry curricula have been too focused on memorization. She's trying to change that. The overlay of green chemistry, she says, will make content even more relevant for students who are already asking these
6: questions. You know, the students are really curious about personal care products. What's in their water bottle? Is there lead in the paint in my really old apartment? And all of these are chemistry problems. A typical curriculum or text, Dusky says,
7: might devote one problem to someone concerned about lead in drinking water, then move on to the next problem.
6: Maybe if we, if we look at lead and paint, we might look at it from many different angles and we might revisit it throughout the semester. Is it going to stay in the paint or not? If it gets in the dust, where does it go? Then there's all the chemistry stuff. Like, how do I even detect for lead and paint? So that's how we wrap in things like, well, light interacts with matter. We have certain instruments that help us to put some numbers on these things. So I kind of feel like the green chemistry perspective is going to allow us to tell a more complete story. It was like we were telling part of a story before, you know
7: oh, well, you don't need to know where this came from. That idea of teaching the whole story has been central at the University of Oregon for more than a decade. As a leader in green chemistry, it's taught 200 chemistry faculty from around the country in annual week-long workshops. That gives U of O Assistant Department Head Julie Hack a clear view of the changes at Berkeley. I think the changes that are happening at Berkeley are an incredible validation of this approach. A validation because of Berkeley's heft and reach. Each year, 2,400 incoming students will be learning their most basic chemistry principles, green. I think the impact is huge. These are the future decision makers in our society. And what we've seen, once these students are armed with the tools of green chemistry, They really become empowered to participate in the solutions of finding more sustainable products and processes. If chemist Allison Narayan is any indication, the changes will be broad, from the mundane to the profound.
10: So it does make me think about the way that I do chemistry. For example, reducing the amount of waste that you have. We actually had a discussion last night at our research group meeting about reusing test tubes. So we use lots of test tubes, and then usually when we're done with these, we just throw them away. You know, so in my spare time when I'm, you know, in my hood working up reactions or on the bus on my way to lab, like I find myself thinking about, like, what else could you make that from? You know, instead of making this commodity chemical from, you know, petroleum, what else could you make that from? So it does, it does color the way that I think about things and the type of daydreaming that I do.
7: Berkeley has now opened a Center for Green Chemistry. It's planning a new graduate course in the spring, and it will offer a new green chemistry emphasis that students may choose and that shows up like a minor on their transcripts. All these changes have not escaped the notice of the chemical industry, says Mike Wilson.
8: These are discussions that strike at the very heart of the chemical enterprise, the things that we're writing about and the things that we're teaching have enormous influence for some of the largest industry groups and the largest companies in the world. And they certainly have an interest in influencing what we do here. And so we've had to be very careful because we certainly want these companies to embrace the concepts of green chemistry not as a greenwash but as a fundamental element of their corporate mission. But we also have to be independent in the way that we conduct our work. So there's an inherent tension there that we work with almost every day.
7: That tension may be stronger at Berkeley, where the changes in chemistry teaching have implications for chemical policy across California. But the shift to green chemistry at universities around the country seems clear. Again, Julie Hack of the University of Oregon. Our goal is that green chemistry will just become the way chemistry is taught. And pretty soon, green chemistry will disappear, and it will just be the way chemistry is done. At Berkeley, professors say the goal is to turn out the next generation of not just chemists, but writers, politicians, and attorneys who can understand the consequences of the way things are made. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet.
1: Coming up, spirits soar in the big apple on the wings of a red-tailed hawk called Pale Male. The bird of prey warms the hearts of New Yorkers and creates a community among strangers.
2: You would be sitting on the bench in the park with Pale Male and his mate on this penthouse, and he would just go after pigeons and catch it in mid-air right in front of you. And suddenly you have to share this. The legend of Pale
1: Male and the man behind the legend is just ahead on Living on Earth.
3: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Officials at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill recently discovered something disturbing. The water coming out of dozens of brand new water coolers in their brand new building on campus had dangerously high levels of lead. It didn't make sense. Lead's a potent neurotoxin that was banned from pipes and solder used in plumbing decades ago. So where was the lead coming from? Mark Edwards, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Virginia Tech, was called in to investigate. Professor Edwards, welcome to Living on Earth.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: So where was the lead coming from?
5: Well, the only source of lead left in new construction has to do with brass fixtures, and these include your faucet at the kitchen, and also intricate plumbing devices such as ball valves and water meters that are used on the path as the water flows to your tap. How did they discover the problem? Initially, some of the students and faculty in the building had complaints about the taste and odor of the drinking water, and when they went to investigate they were shocked to find that about 20% of the samples that they tested were over federal standards for lead.
1: Brass, if I'm not mistaken, is a combination of copper and zinc,
5: right? Correct. But lead is added to improve the machinability of the brass material. And Congress, in its wisdom, while it banned lead pipes and lead and solder, uh, they Chose under the Safe Drinking Water Act to define lead free brass as anything that contains up to 8% lead by weight. So even to this day, it's still perfectly legal to install brass that weighs 8% lead uh, in brand new buildings.
1: So this lead was leaching out of the brass fitting?
5: Uh, that's correct. In some cases, the brass leaches much, much more than in others, uh, depending on the device and the specific alloy.
1: So my guess, uh, these these water coolers weren't the only ones to have this problem.
5: Oh, by no means. We have sampled in several new schools around the country and have found, even in elementary schools, brand new buildings, a disturbing percentage of the lead collected from the taps over federal guidelines.
1: Ooh, that's trouble because uh, kids are particularly susceptible to the neurotoxin lead.
5: That's correct. And that's why this is such a concern.
1: So, what's your guesstimate in terms of uh, how widespread this problem is?
5: Well, we really don't know because right now no one's requiring testing. What makes the situation at UNC, Chapel Hill, so unusual is they had very conscientious administrators who adopted a zero tolerance policy. And it's only because of this policy that we detected these problems. In most cases, people just assume that the water's safe.
1: Now, these brass fittings, they met the federal standards.
5: Yes, they did, and that's what makes this um, so disconcerting. What we discovered was on the surface that contacted the water, we found lead levels as high as 18 to 20 percent by weight. So it legally met the under 8 percent standard of the U.S. Congress, but practically it was if these devices contained 18 to 20 percent lead.
1: So lacks standards and lacks inspection and
5: oversight then? Well, yes, there's another standard, a performance standard that these devices are supposed to pass that is designed to ensure that they should never leach lead at levels that constitute a health threat. But about five years ago or so, we discovered that these tests under the guise of the National Sanitation Foundation were so lax that it was akin to doing crash testing of cars into a wall of pillows. Um, we showed that pure lead devices could pass the standard, and so passing the test meant nothing whatsoever in terms of how they'd actually perform. And so what we saw in UNC was a very clear and dramatic example of our earlier concerns that devices were being certified as safe when they were anything but.
1: So in your expert opinion and experience, um, what needs to be done?
5: Well, there's currently a law sponsored by the Environment Public Works Committee of the U.S. Senate that will define lead-free as something far, far less than 8% lead in the device that's legally allowed. Uh, There's discussion of only allowing 0.025% lead in surfaces that contact the water. And if we had that standard, we would no longer have these problems, and in a new building we could assume that the water is safe from elevated lead.
1: Just this past weekend, I put in a new faucet in, in one of my bathrooms. And should I be worried?
5: Well, it's quite common that for a period of time, that could last anywhere from a week to a month or so, that the lead is elevated when you install a new faucet in your bathroom or kitchen. What made this most recent case so unusual is that the high lead persisted at levels. 20, 30 times the federal standards for months and months and months, and no matter how hard we tried to fix the problem, we couldn't until we went in and found this one particular device and eventually removed it.
1: Well, what can I do or what can anyone do at home if they have this problem? How would they even know they had the problem?
5: Well, that's what makes it so difficult. Um, It might only affect one out of a 100 or one out of a 1,000 taps with very, very serious problems. they're extraordinarily difficult to remediate because once this plumbing is installed, and of course it's behind walls and in crawl spaces, even knowing that the problem existed, it took us $30,000 of staff time and effort to find this defective device and remove it from the system so it could no longer pose a danger to public health. So, I don't have the answer right now, but the first step is to recognize that these problems can and do exist, and we should be alert to them.
1: Well, Professor Edwards, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, You're welcome. Mark Edwards teaches at Virginia Tech. He and Carolyn Elflin from UNC Chapel Hill solved the mystery of the campus water coolers. Their findings are in the latest issue of the Journal of the American Water Works Association, and there's a link to the study on our website. LOE.ORG This is a tale of two immigrants. One, a young man from Belgium who decides to move to New York City in the early 1990s, seeking not fame nor fortune, but his fate. The other is a bird of prey, a red-tailed hawk the likes of which hadn't been seen in the city for a hundred years.
2: He was a red-tailed hawk. Completely wild. A stranger to the city. Like I was, but he was no lost soul.
1: Man and hawk both had high expectations. The hawk soon took up residence on a 12-floor ledge of a 5th Avenue apartment building. For the man moving up in the world was a bit slower. When Frederick Lillian and the bird's path is crossed, both lives took a dramatic turn. The story of the red-tailed hawk, known as Pale Male, Is documented in Frederic Lillian's new feature length film, The Legend of Pale Mail, A Hawk, a City, a Love Story. Frederic Lillian, welcome to Living on Earth.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Why did you decide to come to New York City in the first place?
2: Huh. Um, I guess uh, it was uh, out of options. I was um, in in Belgium and. you know, uh, failing in my law studies and decided to leave. And, uh, my God, was well, not a better place to, to go than New York City. And I wrote a letter to my father saying that I would go for a few months and, and, and see for myself. And I eventually stayed 15 years.
1: So you were in Central Park and you stumble across this bird that's soaring overhead. And it changed your life.
2: It did, and and I must say that at the time I was working as a, um, a floor manager of a hair salon on the Upper East Side, and uh, my God, I was hell on earth. I really hated that job, and, and whenever I could escape, I, I would go and eat my, my lunch in the park. And one day, I just looked up, and, and here he was, eating his own lunch, and uh, I guess that day I decided that I would quit my job and, and buy a video camera and and become a you know wildlife filmmaker.
1: <laughs> now we should say that uh, you might have been a better manager of a hair salon than you were a filmmaker.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it took me, you know, it took me quite a long time, but I guess sometime in life you need those crazy moments to to do something um it was probably a very old dream that was buried inside of me. And uh, being in New York helped.
1: Well, you know, the city is a place of serendipity. You had a, a chance meeting with a, a guy named Charles Kennedy, and he he winds up changing your life.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, so here I am with my little camera trying to run and find this hawk in this huge park, and wasn't you know, I wasn't very successful at it. And then one day, I, I, I saw this guy with this huge camera, beautiful lens, 500-millimeter lens. And I'm like, of course, my first reaction is, oh, my God, that's city He's stealing my idea. <laughs> and and um, he came to me with a big smile. And it's the kind of person that, you know, understood the whole picture here. And right away, he said... Um, you know, what are you doing, and all that. Oh, well, I have this lens. If you want, you can borrow it. And, oh, my God, did I borrow it. I, I borrowed it for years and years and years. Um, so, But most of all, we became very, very good friends. And we should say that he was watching this red-tailed hawk a lot longer than you. Absolutely. I mean, he he was some sort of a... Uh, an expert. Uh, he, he spent all his days in the park and learning about all the birds, the butterflies, uh, the moth, and of course, pale was his favorite, uh, because uh, that bird had something very special. This bird
1: is a pioneer,
2: and he has to make a rather magical accommodation. He has to adjust to humankind. But if he
1: does that, his reward is immense. There are pigeons here. There are rats, songbirds and squirrels. It is an amazing choice and very rich. And all he has to do is get along with us. He can get along fine uh, with the people. But uh, Pale uh, takes up residency in one of the ritziest locales in New York City on Fifth Avenue. And, and uh, the question is, can we get along with him?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, he's he's the first of his kind to come into the big city and decide, I'm going to make it here. And um, I guess like any other bird or any, any other animal, it's all about survival. But this one did it with panache and, and everything, everything about this bird is, is just special and different. And what a story. I mean, uh, the best script writer in Hollywood could not come up with a story like this.
1: But this is a story not only about you and a hawk. It's a story about a, a city, a community. And, you know, it's interesting because the, the city that you portray is one that strangers come together in a way that they ordinarily don't.
2: Yes, and, and I'm, it's probably the, the magic of pale mail is because of him that people would sit on a bench. And I I believe in a way that observing nature or living in nature with nature in a way make you a better person. And uh, because you're admiring this magnificent free bird right in front of your eyes. And it's quite spectacular. I mean, you would be sitting on the bench in the park in this beautiful setting with uh, Pale Male and his mate on this penthouse uh, right in front of you, and he would just go after pigeons and catch it in midair right in front of you. And and suddenly you have to share this with, with the person on your left or the person on your right. And one is a billionaire living on the building right next to Pale Male, And the other one is our homeless.
3: I have a cockatiel that's hanging in the window on the ninth floor between Madison and Park Avenue. And all of a sudden, I hear my bird go crazy, and I see this huge hawk on my windowsill. I took the bird on my fingers to calm it down, and it didn't die, but I think he might have had a shock. It's almost like seeing the Virgin Mary in a tree or something. You know, why do people go to see something that is an image of... It's almost religious in a way to see that I come and see him now. Some
6: people go to Mecca, some people go to Jerusalem. I just have to go on the Madison Avenue bus and and you get to see mill. To see
9: Father Hawk or Mother Hawk bring a rat to his baby, it's wonderful, it's biblical.
1: These are real New York characters, right out of Central oh, Casting. New
2: Yorkers, the best. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, they are amazing. I mean, I mean, to to me, it's and I guess that that's uh, I understood after a few years of trying whatever I was trying to do that the story wasn't necessarily up there in the nest, but was right here on the bench, and 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 pale mail had become this fantastic uh, way to to explore uh, what nature could could do to us and and how people perceive it
1: is pale male still uh sitting atop uh, the 927 fifth avenue
2: he's still there he's still there he's still doing it uh, he doesn't give up he will not give up as you know as any good new yorker <laughs> they're very resilient <laughs> if you can uh, make
1: it there you can make it anywhere
2: absolutely <laughs> so he's not giving up i mean he's He's had, you know, issues since uh, the nest was removed uh, in 2004. Uh, But uh, they're not giving up. Uh, Pell-Mail and his mate, Lola, are still around. And uh, if you come to New York City, go to Central Park, and you'll probably find him flying overhead or catching a pigeon right in front of you.
1: Well, Frederic Lillian, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. Frederic Lillian's feature film, The Legend of Pale Male, will open at the Angelica Theater in New York City at the end of this month and then in selected theaters around the country beginning December. We leave you this week in Iona Island at Stony Point, New York. island is one of four tidal wetlands located along the Hudson River estuary. The U.S. Navy used it to store bullets and bombs until the end of World War II. Today, Iona and the adjacent Salisbury Marsh is home to 165 species of birds and is a spawning area for fish. Ania Lockwood followed the Hudson River from the Adirondacks down to the Atlantic. She recorded the ebbs and flows for a CD she calls a sound map of the Hudson River. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkin, Sammy Sousa, and Emily Garin. Our interns are Nora Doyle-Burr and Hannah Lyles. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is Living on Earth's executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies, Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation,
5: supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy,
1: productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org